Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang tamang sankhang namasami One of the uh, things that is very striking about coming to uh, a place and, and leading a retreat of this nature, uh, gathering together in a, a large crowd like this, and maybe there's a, a number of, uh, of uh, faces that are familiar uh, when we start out, a few old cronies. Uh, but many... Uh, uh, People maybe the face is a little bit familiar, seen seen her somewhere. Where was that? When was that? Others completely new. And so uh, at the beginning are uh, probably the same for, for many, if not all of you, just a sense of not really quite knowing people and a uh, sense of you're here with your own purpose in mind and you've had your own sort of life running up to this period and then now here we are we've uh, only a week has gone by one week and uh, just as we were uh, pointing out just after the first day how long a day can be (laughs) well a week (laughs) like at least six and a half eons since the car pulled up, huh? Mm-hmm. All these universes that we've traveled through and have traveled through us. Cycles of experience and patterns of feeling. So much happening uh, in some ways, just in the period of this time. And one of the things that's happening, uh, at least I find always happens, is that we uh, we turn from a, a, a cluster of a, a hundred some odd individuals, all with our own little trip, sort of our kind of trip, kind of our own pod, a sort of bubble of me and my lifeness that sort of gathered around. And uh, our pods have all sort of blurred. <laughs> The, uh, the edges of our little bubbles somehow merge together. Maybe some of you have been stoically keeping your bubble very limited <laughs> just around your, your immediate uh, immediate zone. But I, I, the feeling I get, or just how it seems to me, is uh, that our bubbles all merge and that we form something of a, a group uh, identity, a group reality, it becomes a retreat. And even if we don't have a name for somebody else, it's, you know, that woman with the red shawl, 
who drinks her tea that particular way. Yeah. Or that, that guy who does that thing with his sandal. <laughs> you know, different ways that we have of labeling each other. Or that guy I shared with a, a, room, a room with ten years ago and I still can't remember the name of. But we, we're all familiar with each other now, aren't we? Different ways. But, uh, it's, a, it's a strange transmutation that, uh, that happens, that we, we form into a, in some respects, into a kind of single creature, sort of many cells of a single body. And uh, I don't want to get too sort of woo-woo about this. <laughs> But uh, there's that quality. Now we 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 uh, have lived in each other's company, exchanged cells. <laughs> Again, not to get too gruesome about this, <laughs> but you know we've all been shedding cells and skin cells in large quantities, breathing in, breathing out, so that uh, numerous times we've already you know, that which was me when I sort of walked through the through the, the doorway for the first time a week ago and then uh, you know that which that was was me and my carbon dioxide and oxygen has probably passed through <laughs> numerous other bodies if not everybody here and similarly I've been breathing in all of you which you might find slightly disgusting <laughs> or charming or uh, inspiring or <laughs> or just perverse yeah but this is a fact, you know. We, we've been sharing this space, and and uh, you know the body is impermanent, and uh, we are also not just in terms of physical exchange and, and sort of social closeness and forming a, a kind of societal group uh, in a, in a superficial way. There's a commonality of purpose that uh, we all came with our own little trips, our own plans, our own sort of histories and things that we were doing and what we were full of. And that uh, one of the elements of a, of a retreat time is that we, we join together in, in, in a corporate activity. It's a single body. We chant together, we sit together, we walk together, eat together, bow together move in and out according to the, the rhythm of the, the schedule together. So there's a commonality of experience in a very, very obvious, direct way. And so that you know, within the space of a week, we now, at least to some degree, are sharing the same trip. <laughs> right? There's a, there's a, a, a unity of, of uh, intent and, and of, uh, of effort. So obviously this is you know, somewhat general, generalized, generalizations, the sweeping statements, but this is uh, pretty much the case for us. So one of the things that I find uh, with, a, with a retreat situation is that kind of commonality of, of purpose and, and effort, intent, has an enormous uh, supportive quality to the practice. That uh, our efforts to try and... Um, Understand this, this strange experience of human existence, the body, the mind, how it all works and fits together, and does what it does. The effort to remain focused and restrained and uh, sustain mindfulness throughout the, the course of the day, dealing with the, the 
uh, vastly variegated flow of experiences and perceptions, feelings. I, I'm, I freely admit I wouldn't have a prayer trying to do this on my own. Um, just uh, to the degree that is possible with with uh, you know, noble and uh, energetic company of uh, of this type. That uh, I mean, obviously, after many years of, of being a monk, it's a lot considerably easier to sort of do it on my own. But uh, certainly, that um, uh, in the beginning of my my um, efforts at spiritual practice, um, if I hadn't have had a, a, a large group of of like-minded and well-intentioned people around me all doing exactly the same thing that I wanted to do, yeah, I wouldn't have had a prayer. Really. It would have been, oh, that's a nice idea. (laughs) 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 Sounds great, cool. I'll write home about that one. And then away it it dissolves. So this is a a very precious um, quality, spiritual companionship companionship, kalyanamita, the way that our efforts buoy each other up. Now you might not, this is obviously not sort of prominent in our minds when we, when we sign up for a retreat. Oh, I think I'll sign up for this 10-day retreat so I can give other people some support for their spiritual practice. <laughs> maybe someone did think that, but probably a minority, if not maybe one out of a hundred. But that's the effect, isn't it? That, uh, that we find that uh, when we uh, are dis- when we have that oh no <laughs> feeling that uh, when the alarm goes uh, uh, in the morning and there's that first thought I'm a night person you know my my natural disposition is as a as a night hawk so I'm still waiting for the 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 day when the alarm goes and the first thought is yes. <laughs> Yeah, twenty-five years and still negotiating. <laughs> but uh, that's okay. Yeah. I, uh, you know, that, that uh, when there is that feeling of oh no, and not just at four in the morning, but you know, whenever it might be, and you know, during the the day when we we just we got to move. I just can't bear it another moment or. Oh, not another hour in the hall. <laughs> oh no, I can't stand seeing another mindful person. It'll drive me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those kind of feelings. And then being able to just uh, um, know that feeling and to be carried along, to be buoyed up like the sea the saltiness of the sea buoys us up and, and carries us along. Our own strength is, is failing us and we would just prefer to sink. <laughs> just. And sometimes, you know, the right thing to do is to sink, to kind of bag it and go take a nap. And, and uh, that's, that's a, a needed part, you know, a, a now and then. But more often than not, that that impulse of just I can't be bothered or oh I can't bear this or oh, you're not another minute that we we find that 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 those impulses have have been a a kind of quiet, have exercised a, a quiet tyranny in our life 
and just that's what pulls us around that's what you know, kind of drags us through our our days and, and sort of keeps us uh, on the treadmill sort of one one thing after another after another and after another never quite content and the quality of sangha and spiritual friendship spiritual companionship is a tremendous um, power it has a great power to provide that strength that just is well maybe just another minute or not quite yet or it's not that bad or oh, well look at those guys they're, they're holding out you can manage it and meanwhile they're all thinking oh not another minute <laughs> and you're one of the ones that they're looking at thinking well he's still doing it <laughs> So you might think of this as a sort of group delusion, <laughs> a kind of mass hallucination, and that none of us really want to do this. <laughs> but, and that's true. Of mem- you know, but I think you have to, we have to recognize that within each of our minds there's what I, I refer to as the inner committee. And some of the committee members definitely do not want to do this. There's far more important and interesting and enjoyable things to be doing. But other members of the committee... Um, this is the most uh, precious and beautiful, the only real thing that we do in our life is uh, to cultivate mindfulness and wisdom. And so uh, taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha is um, the, the act of electing those latter members of the committee to the controlling positions. <laughs> Put wisdom in the chair. Yeah. Uh, and have uh, you know, mindfulness and and uh, loving kindness as the sort of kind <laughs> uh, of the senior chief officers. So one of the reasons why this is is significant is um, you know when we we really uh, recognize the value of spiritual friendship. And see how much it it really can support us, and that real goodness, real you know, th- that which could not come forth from our other situations can come forth when we have that assistance, that support. And and also, you know, so often the, the Buddha's te- teaching about this is quoted where Ananda uh, comes to the Buddha and he's been having. Uh, as the story goes, Ananda was having a discussion with another monk about what was the. Um, Key elements of the of the spiritual life, and and uh, this uh, other monk who was a, a kind of jhana walla, medita- sort of meditation um, uh, meditation was like the main focus of his his uh, life. And he said uh, he felt the bhavana meditation uh, cultivation was the the uh, the key. Peace was the, the the main part of the of spiritual life. That was the real most important thing of, of the Buddha's practice. And then Ananda, who you know has the role of being the sort of the softy in the, all of the the stories, the kind of vignettes of the the Buddha's lifetime. Ananda, uh, was a sort of sociable, friendly kind of the Buddha's secretary, and kind of always arranging visitors and kind of trying to make everyone happy and keep everyone comfortable and supplied with this and that, making sure everything was all right. Um, then Ananda says, uh, well, I, I think uh, that um, 
spiritual friendship, Kalyanamita, is, is half of the holy life. And then the other monk goes, ah, nonsense, meditation, meditation, meditation. That's, that's, uh, that's the way, none of this friendship humbug. <laughs> and so anyway, as they do in these stories, they go to the Buddha and then run this uh, past him. And Ananda says, so you know, my contention was that spiritual friendship was, is half of the holy life. And then the Buddha, as again he usually does in these stories, is not so Ananda. <laughs> not so Ananda. Spiritual friendship is not half of the holy life, it's the whole of the holy life. And so, uh, the, but then he, he expands on that, because uh, he says, uh, he uses the, uh, as I recall it, a kind of wordplay. Kalyanamita can mean spiritual friendship, like friendship with other people on a spiritual level. Uh, but, and so he he um, uh, he expounds on that, saying you know having wise friends, wise companions, you know, noble companions is uh, is the whole of the holy life. And then he also flips it around and says, um, well, uh, if you uh, consider that, well, and consider well, what is the holy life? Then he said it's friendship with the lovely, you know, capital L, with the uh, the uh, Kalyana, the beautiful, or the lovely, or the um, the holy, and um, that it's association with with that which is the whole of the holy life. And so, and he said, "What is and what is the Kalyana?" He says, "This is the noble eightfold path." <laughs> and so that uh, the on the external level, this is one one way of looking at that little teaching is it's our companions, our friends, our kind of spiritual um, support group, if you like, and internally, it's that recognition of of truth, of dhamma, that the cultivation of the eightfold path within ourselves, and the realization of, of the lovely, the beautiful, the, the dhamma, the uh, the true nature of reality itself internally. Um, so that uh, you know, just by using that one word, kalyanamita, the and, and Saying this is the whole of the holy life, the Buddha says, "Well, there's an external aspect, but there's and also the internal. So just hanging out with the right people is only part of it. <laughs> there's also got to be that internal realization as well." So today is uh, Friday, I believe, and uh, a week has gone by, and we have uh, a couple more days. Uh, of our communal life together, uh, if all goes according to plan. You know, of course, who knows what might happen? You know, there might be some kind of strange cosmic accident, and this chunk of planet Earth gets sliced off and floats off into space. And maybe it must. Maybe oh, it's already happened. You know. <laughs> Maybe some of you have been wondering what that strange feeling was, this kind of large thumps and rumbles in the background that was actually <laughs> IMS budding off from planet Earth. And the, uh, we're already, uh, we are maybe it. This is uh, us for the, you know, <laughs> all the humans that remain. Don't worry. <laughs> I don't think that's happened. But we have just a little while together, probably, uh, 
uh, in this form. And then uh, come Sunday, then um, there'll be, a, a, in all likelihood, a, a scattering. We'll go our separate ways and um, back to uh, the different lives that we we uh, we live. This particular corporate, this kind of body will will die, will break up, all these elements disappear and, and dissolve, and go their separate ways. And so at this point in a retreat, the people, you know, we, it's very natural to wonder, well, how can I carry this kind of spirit, these qualities, what I develop here in a retreat, how can I carry this through into the other world, into that different sets of experience that... that uh, Form such a huge proportion of uh, of my life. How can I do that? Well, in a way, this, these these two uh, elements of um, spiritual friendship are really a key part of this. Because oftentimes, when we come on a retreat, we think it's sort of so much what we're we're learning or what we're we're focusing on is the meditation practice, and what we sort of learn with on the walking path or with our eyes closed on the cushion. But oftentimes we miss the fact that a lot of what we're learning and what, what is helpful with a retreat is just the sheer companionship, just having like-minded people around. So in sustaining our practice outside of a, of a retreat, it's not just a matter of resolving to, to sit uh, and meditate a couple of times a day, which obviously is, is great if we can work that into our, our, our life, but also just recognizing the, the value and the worth of, of spiritual friendship really is taking the trouble, making the effort to to stay connected to, to like-minded people, to, to be part of the local group, or, or to just um, sustain those kind of bonds of, uh, of connection, of friendship, with those who are, are close to you and have a similar you know, values and similar principles, similar aspirations, similar ethics. And to... to uh, do what we can to uh, to lend that support to others. You know, that we can we can provide that for others. Uh, and many of you I, I know belong to, to local groups and participate in those kind of things. Um, but I would just want to heartily support that and, and uh, encourage a, a real recognition of of the worth of that. Now, there might be some of you who are thinking, yeah, but what about me? I'm all alone down there in, in the Basin Louis, Mississippi, or Duckwater, Nevada. And, yeah, I'm a Buddhist group of one. There's not another <laughs> remotely Buddhist person for 300 miles in any direction. You don't live in the Dakotas. You, know. <laughs> you don't know what it's like out there. But, and that's, uh, and maybe that's true. Uh, you know that there might one might be very so physically isolated from others, um, but there are also um, you know, being connected with others and being connected with the spirit of what what is uh, embodied in a, a situation like this. It's, it's not just a matter of solely keeping those kind of personal friendships going in a local group, but there's also just one's connection to the whole tradition and the practice. Of um, yeah, the this sort of Theravadan lineage that that has come down uh, from so many centuries ago, from the earliest periods of the the Buddhist uh, dispensation. 
so that um, or whether you are, whether you are in a, you do have a local group to, to participate in or whether you are out in Duckwater, Nevada on your own um, and uh, still the um, there is the the uh, practices of devotion there is the recollections of Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha you can still we can still make a shrine in our home we can still do the the chanting and recollect these verses um, of and respect and praise and uh, delighting in the, the Buddha's teaching and, and these practices. So that, uh, and this is what I find for myself that, uh, and probably many of you also, just reciting these verses, whether they're in English or in Pali, there's a strong sense of, of, um, of belonging that comes with that. I and mean, maybe those of you who are kind of having had a problem with the chanting are thinking, belonging? <laughs> strong sense of alienation. <laughs> Well, if that's the case, we'll just you know please you know erase this part of the Dhamma talk. Don't, <laughs> don't worry about this. But for those, but seriously, for those who who have a, you know found a sense of uh, inspiration or, or or that that's been a support for for faith, then it's really a powerful way of, in a way, tapping into that that lineage that has been going on for you know twenty five centuries. You know these these verses, these words that you know. Uh, emanate from the time of the Buddha itself, you know, 2,500 years ago. And, and, and these little rituals, just bowing, like the a shrine with the candles and flowers and incense, these are, are, are very, very ancient. The, the Buddhist monastic order, not that I wish to go and blow my own trumpet, Tarani did a spectacular trumpet <laughs> blowing for us last, <laughs> last night. So I won't blow our own trumpet much more. But uh, this is supposedly the old, the, the longest-lasting human institution that's still funding, uh, functioning under its original founding um, ethic. That we're still, we're still uh, the uh, the mission statement still applies, <laughs> <laughs> and we still ha- and we still have the same you know rules, <laughs> two and a half thousand years later. So it's the uh, you know. This is old, old, and that when when one is uh, um, say joining in with or, or reciting these 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 verses and these these teachings, these principles, there's uh, a tapping into uh, a, a a stream of all of those thousands, millions of people, a million, countless millions, hundreds of thousands of millions of occasions where people have. Recited itipiso pagawa arahang samma sambuddho that have put their hands together to uh, and a gesture of respect just that much just that when when we do that when we bow when we kind of just recollect these teachings these principles there's a way that we are tapping into that that stream that current of faith that has been kind of flowing through the through the ages. And again, you know, if you have a, a, a different uh, faith, or, or um, this hasn't been meaningful to you, or that, uh, that you're not a, a devotional type, then, then you know, obviously, you, we can find other ways. But uh, at least for myself, uh, you know, and I started out as a sort of cynical materialist, <laughs> skeptical type. Uh, I found that there's a strange uh, chemistry that comes with that. That there's a, a kind of beauty. And a sense of connection. So even if you are sort of physically alone, you don't have 
friends around. There's simply that quality of recollecting these these principles then it brings to mind or brings into our consciousness um, that uh, a sense of you know you're participating in something which has been uh, in the world and has been a source of goodness and and harmony between beings for for two and a half thousand years and at least I find when just that that thought kind of <laughs> lifts up the heart there's a there's a brightening there's a a a, a lightening that, that happens within the heart when that's recollected. Also, another element of, um, uh, say, functioning in, in the world and and uh, sustaining the practice, and uh, which is part of um, very much a part of the re- retreat life. That again, we don't notice. We we don't really think of as necessarily being a major source of insight or um, what we're really kind of doing here I mean probably not most most of us here are not thinking I'm coming on this precept retreat I'm going to go to the IMS and just keep the eight precepts for ten days and then with a little bit of meditation on the side right <laughs> no it's like we come, and do, we, do, we come and do meditation and the precepts are kind of around the edges and yeah, we do this kind of little ceremony at the beginning and that's kind of there but really what we're doing is meditation meditation, meditation, meditation but uh, if we take a, a step back and consider you know, you know the Buddha gave enormous emphasis to, um, to sila to um, uh, moral discipline and spoke in numerous uncountable uh, times of the, the worth of, of uh, keeping precepts and it's a uh, you know the Buddha was was a, a very much a pragmatist rather than an idealist, and so the um, from his teaching the point of keeping the precepts is, is very sort of simple and straightforward, and it's what I, I like to um, sort of present as a kind of radical form of of, uh, of therapy, yeah, along with um, the practice of generosity, that if we if we train ourselves, if we keep the precepts, just even the you know the basic five moral precepts for a, a lay practitioner, we don't have to remember having done a lot of uh, a lot of foolish things. And if we don't have to remember them, the mind is free from that regret and self-criticism. It's called behavior therapy. If I don't do it, I don't have to remember it. <laughs> right? That makes sense. I mean, some people oh, come on. They'll be so simplistic. You know, I'm a therapist. I know how can how can you say that kind of thing? Now, let's get serious about this. Yeah. You can't just make sweeping statements like that. You know? well, I'm not trying to trash um, psychotherapy at all, but just but the the one of the interesting things is how little people recognize the effect of what we do. You know, if I tell you a lie, then I have to carry that around, and I have to be worried that you're going to find out. And I have to kind of then keep piling it on to sort of keep you deluded, right? Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. It's a heck of a job keeping, <laughs> keeping those tangles together and maintaining a, a web of deception. Exhausting. <laughs> and then it doesn't work either. You know, it falls apart. So that we, we find that we create a... 
uh, a lot of tension and difficulty and struggle in our lives simply because of uh, of living carelessly, you know, living disrespectfully or harmfully, acting in in ways, and that if we um, and, and and again, some of you might think this is kind of a totally simplistic approach, but the is what the Buddha pointed out was that if we um, if we live in a in an ethically scrupulous way, if we have a kind of a good moral standard, then the heart is free from remorse. And when the, the heart is free from remorse, um, not just because we're shameless, <laughs> okay, well, I can just do what I like and then just not care about it, right? That would, be, that would have the same effect. Yeah, well, I think probably a few of us have tried that, right? I certainly did. And, uh, didn't <laughs> it was pretty grim. So we, uh, when uh, the heart is free from remorse, then we find there's like a, a whole relaxation, there's an ease in the system, the body and the mind um, feel, uh, feel content. There's a, there's a relaxation and an inner easefulness. Or what you could call you know, positive self-image. You know, we we, uh, we are, are, are comfortable with our life. And then because of that comfort, because of that ease, um, the kind of relaxation of body and mind, there's a yeah, like a natural self-respect that we feel good about ourselves, and when there's that that quality of of uh, self-respect or, or ease, positivity, then um, we are the, uh, much more able to uh, to keep the mind in the present moment. Because if I'm if I'm sort of full of tension and and kind of anxiety and fear and self-criticism and that, I don't want to be here. I want to be somewhere else. I don't want to be feeling this. I want to be fantasizing about something or going somewhere or busying myself with something. It's like if you're um, uh, if you're really uh, content and at ease here at IMS, you know, you're really delighted to be here, then your mind doesn't sort of come up with ideas about uh, where else to go. But if you're uncomfortable here, if there's something, the atmosphere is oppressive or the people are difficult or you know, the, the food's all wrong or the, you know, you're, you're totally... Um, bored with a meditation retreat <laughs> then you want to be somewhere else right? if it's uncomfortable we want to be somewhere else so it's similar with our mind that if we um, are at ease here in the present moment then the mind is not generating all that kind of the, the causes whereby it wants to go racing off so similarly the, um, by having a, establishing that uh, uh, inner ease then we're we're Removing the causes whereby uh, ag- the mind will become agitated, so um, we make it much, much easier to concentrate. So samadhi comes naturally from the the mind and body when it's kind of settled and and uh, content. And then that, uh, with the mind uh, con- uh, being concentrated, when there is samadhi, then we naturally are able to um, observe the way things are, see how the mind works in the present moment. And in seeing the way things are, that what's yata bhutang jnana dasanang, recognizing the way things are, then from that recognition, that insight, then naturally there comes a, a detachment, like a non-clinging. But the the heart doesn't want to push things away or grab hold and get entangled. And then so that there's there's that uh, relationship, a kind of non-clinging, non-grasping, non-rejecting relationship to experience. And so 
that naturally leads to the heart's release. Quality of freedom is it just comes forth from that. And the Buddha points out this is a completely natural process. You don't have to craft anything. It isn't uh, in there. It's just this, it does it on its own. But uh, the beginning point is that simply of of uh, establishing our, our lives in the precepts. That's the foundation for it. But you know, if we try and go for the samadhi <laughs> without the the precepts, then it's rather like you know where uh, if we had the you know the drill going, you know that uh, the the drilling experience we had before the meal time today. You know, it's rather like if we had the you know hired the drillers to come in during the whole retreat. <laughs> you know, it'd be hard to establish concentration when you've got all this <laughs> agitation shaking us up. Or if we had a, a non-precept retreat, you had to sort of, each of us had to pick, you know, one precept to be breaking every hour of the day while we're here together. It'd be kind of fun. <laughs> it'd be exciting. You know, what's Taranya going to do next? Uh, which precept is she going to break today? Or, Ajahn Puna, he's, is he violent or is he looking acquisitive? <laughs> What's going to happen next? Yeah. Is Karuna Dhamma going to start doing backflips down the, the hall? Or Greg and uh, Venerable Dhamma Ratna playing frisbee? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it'll be exciting, <laughs> but uh, not very peaceful. And, uh, and not, not, and probably not that insightful. So, this is an encouragement to see how, uh, to the great extent to which just keeping the precepts, like all this week, you know, probably most of us have not done that much that we have to regret. And maybe our, you know, our compulsive anxiety-producing tendencies have managed to come up with a few things. <laughs> but really, I mean, no one has killed anybody. I haven't heard of a single murder having occurred at IMS this whole week. But, uh, you know, theft has almost been completely eradicated. Not a single burglary in anybody's room. You know, that uh, we don't recognize this is what's happening, but there's a phenomenal atmosphere of trust. We don't have to lock our rooms. Right? It's all open. Hundred people. How many? How many places could you live with a hundred people that you don't know, and who are not talking to you? You don't even know their names. You may be sharing a room with someone you don't even know their name, and you don't even put your stuff away. So the um, and how pleasant it feels when you don't have to be worried about each other in this way, so that. The seeing in a very direct way. I often I have this fantasy of, of running a literally running a precept but no meditation retreat. You come together, keep noble silence, but have no meditation. People are limited to staying in the property, but just everyone keeps the eight precepts. And I, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't get very different results from <laughs> than a lot of you know very sort of organized formal practice. Just that that degree of restraint and mindfulness that we have to to follow just to to control our behaviors and be respectful of each other has its own result so that's a, a tremendous um, way of supporting our practice outside of retreat keeping the retreat going if you like is there's nothing to stop you keeping the precepts 
once you're outside the gate. And yeah, you know, I would suggest that the five precepts are a bit more practical for the the other world than than the eight, because otherwise you have to endlessly explain why you're not eating dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and also, if you're married to someone who's not here, suddenly announcing celibacy when you get home could. I just don't want to deal with the notes I would get. (laughs) Probably a few lawsuits, but... uh, So I would suggest the five rather than the eight. But that's... uh, When when we feel like, well, how can I take the retreat with me? Well, it's like, you can't necessarily take the silence, but you can certainly take the precepts. And that... And not only is it um, a support for like, inner peacefulness because of not having to regret uh, things that we've done, um, ways that we've hurt others, or um, feelings of the painfulness of unskillful action and speech, but also you might have noticed how much the precepts uh, function as a, a mindfulness practice. That you... That you your heart is guided by with a carefulness when we when we take the precepts. We're we're being attentive to what we're doing. You know, am I about to to, to tread on a, a little creature? You know, we have this invasion of little ladybug type beings. They're everywhere. <laughs> so you have to you know look out for the little creatures, and, and so that um, this is something that Ajahn Chah used to emphasize a, a great deal: is how much the precepts are not just external to the meditation, but they're like an ongoing tool for mindfulness. They support the practice and the function of, of sati, of mindfulness. Um, so that when we take the, the precepts quite seriously and really take that to heart, then we, we find that's amazingly helpful in terms of, of uh, sustaining an ongoing uh, attention, a care, for the way that we speak, the way that we act, the way that we handle our possessions, the way that we, we function in our work life, the way we relate to, to you know, people and money and, and possessions and everything of that nature. And so that when, when uh, we're drifting towards some kind of greedy or uh, aversive or self-centered action or speech, then ding, <laughs> the little warning light comes on and says, well, hang on a minute. You know, as you start to bend the truth for the sake of a little personal advantage, you know, I mean, not excessive personal advantage, just just a little bit extra for me. <laughs> you know that feeling? <laughs> no one will notice after all, and you know, just uh, we notice. Oh look, well that wasn't quite that wasn't quite true. Or like, do you really need to to get that extra? And so that as, the, as the, that unskillful intent starts to form and the action starts to, to launch, then because of the precept, we notice that. If we haven't taken the precepts or we, we, we don't really make that a, give that any prominence in our life, then at least for most of us, we're kind of halfway down the track before we realize, oh, this isn't actually legal, is it? <laughs> or, or uh, well, you know, that's, uh, this is probably going to have a result, you know, bending the getting imaginative with our tax returns and, you know, or uh, whatever it might be, getting um, uh, a little over-liberal with the, uh, the, the office supplies, 
or uh, the way that we, we talk to people, kind of using unskillful speech, aggressive or harmful, abusive speech, false speech, and so on. So just you know, contemplate this um, as uh, as you, you know, we we have these last couple of days together, and just help to help yourself to cultivate that resolve and to to see to notice how much mindfulness really supports, and how much the precepts and and that um, standard taking voluntarily taking on a standard of of noble conduct really supports that uh, quality of of ongoing mindfulness. Now, on the other, uh, sort of on the more internal level of um, the practice, I was saying about Kalyanamita, friendship with the lovely, or uh, it's like association with the beautiful, association with the lovely, with, it's a really like awakening to Dhamma, remembering to awaken to Dhamma. So this is, in a way, sustaining the reflective and meditative, contemplative attitude throughout our life. And that when, when people would say to Ajahn Chah, oh, I'm so busy you know, teaching school and all the kids and all of my responsibilities, it's really so hard. I can't meditate at home. I've got no time. And he would just say, well, do you have time to breathe? Do you manage to fit you know, any breath in during the day? Or? Do you have time to eat? And they say, oh yeah, of course. He says, well, if you have time to breathe, you've got time to meditate. And he wasn't just trying to be sort of flippant or put people on the spot or to, or to um, belittle formal meditation practice. But what we miss is that uh, the meditation isn't just having our eyes closed on the cushion or walking up and down a single track. Yeah. But it's a whole, in a way, it's more the attitude with which we apprehend our experience of, of living, how we handle uh, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. What, what we do when uh, a sense uh, experience impacts the heart, when an emotion arises, what happens there? And uh, as Ajahn Chah would say, that's the place of practice. When a, a a mood impacts the heart, arises in the heart, that's that's the retreat center. <laughs> that's the, the 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 holy place. That's the uh, the spot to attend to, and you know that happens everywhere, right? <laughs> Regardless of circumstance, whether you're with your family, whether you're you know on the freeway, whether you're sort of in the kitchen or uh, wherever, those impacts are happening all the time. Those arisings. Uh, happening all the time. So what I, I would like to encourage in terms of also sustaining the practice as we, uh, the the perceptions that we experience get a little bit more varied and they, they don't include the IMS buildings <laughs> anymore and they, some other, another cast of characters enters our, our, our vision, is uh, in a way it's referring to what Ajahn Puna was talking about the other evening, that practice of recollection, remembering, uh, and using the, um, in a way, the uh, recollection of, of um, of selflessness, in a way, is that, that well, you, you, you can use any of the, the three characteristics of existence, but anicca and anatta, uh, change or uncertainty, 
and selflessness uh, are the uh, are extraordinarily helpful, simple, powerful tools to to use as an ongoing way of of uh, sustaining that uh, inner recognition of dhamma, like recogn- in recognizing, kind of awakening to the dhamma of the situation, keeping attentive to that uh, that kind of moment of impact in the heart. So one, one time uh, I was doing a a three-month retreat at our monastery in England, uh, uh, Chithurst, and uh, and so normally I, I'm 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 the kind of uh, uh, extremist sort of person. So if I'm going to do something, I always like the kind of the biggest, the uh, most ultimate, the strongest. I, I can't, you know, I, I, I'm not a decaf kind of a person. <laughs> you know, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Pro- I'm going to do it fully. Like give me 120 percent or nothing at all kind of a person. So I usually, uh, if I'm always going for the sort of, with Buddhist teachings, I always like the kind of the biggest, the most ultimatist, the kind of highest absolutististist. You know, I don't want to pootle around with the sort of kindergarten, low-level you know, introductory stuff. And so my mind was very conditioned to that, that manner. And I, and I realized, I'm kind of obsessed with this, you know, extremist thing. <laughs> and the, having the ultimate super bestest. Why don't I just go for something like that? Why don't I just use some the most basic, simple uh, kind of kindergarten access point for a change? So I thought, okay, what I'll do with this retreat is I will just contemplate impermanence. I made, I made three I made three rules for myself: get up when you wake up; when you've had enough to eat, stop; and reflect on Anicca. That was my that was my rules for the three months. And it was far more profound than any, all the other retreats when I was trying to kind of absorb into emptiness or <laughs> contemplate ultimate reality or, <laughs> or realize the nature of Nibbana. Because just that simple recognition of like just seeing whatever, whatever is going on, to see, oh, it's changing. It's, it's changing. It's, it's a thought, it's changing. Oh, here's the wind, oh, it's changing. Oh, it's, it's dawn, it's changing. Oh, the, the, I was happy five minutes ago, and now I'm, now I'm really tense, it's changing. And just seeing that quality of of uh, of anicca in uh, internally, externally, all around, and it had an extraordinary effect of just remembering to to look at all experience in that way, and not just anicca as change, but also anicca as uncertainty. Because when we talk when we talk about impermanence or saying that everything is impermanent, changing, that can sound a little bit sort of dry or technical or sort of just the physics of of the material and the mental world. But uncertainty is the way that we feel, what the heart feels when it meets with, un- with the impermanent, right? We feel uncertain because that is changing. You don't know what it's going to do next. So when you start to, to take that kind of practice seriously and really reflect on, on change and use that as an ongoing kind of mindfulness tool, then... It's like Ajahn Chah would say, the mind that knows uncertainty is the mind of the Buddha. The Buddha said, one who sees me sees the Dhamma, one who sees sees the Dhamma sees me. And so what is the Dhamma? The Dhamma is the truth of uncertainty. So if one who sees uncertainty sees the Buddha, and that which sees the uncertainty is is the quality of the Buddha mind. So that, uh, you know, he, he, he pointed very directly to this being uh, a very essential practice, because what you find when you start to do that is that how much the mind is constantly trying to create certainty. 
plans. I mean, how many of you have been planning? <laughs> I won't ask anyone to put your hands up. <laughs> but it, doesn't it happen? And then we have all these, all these certainties about how it's going to turn out. You know, and probably a few, a few of you have written scripts for dialogues that you need to have next week with particular people. And you've got your lines worked out, and you've got their lines worked out, <laughs> and probably a couple of different possibilities. But uh, as uh, Voltaire once said, uh, doubt may be an uncomfortable state of mind, but certainty is ridiculous. <laughs> and he was dead right, because you know, what happens to all of our certainties? You know, they, they never come out that way, do they? So that when we reflect on that, and that no matter how much the mind is trying to create plans, well, I'm going to, well, after the retreat, I'm going to, oh yes, <laughs> well, I'm going to head back to Northampton, or I'm going off to New York, or I'm going to England. It's like, oh really? Yeah. So um, what you discover is how much we, how much there's a mapping out of the, of the future and, a, and, a, and fixed judgments that we create, plans, ideas, assessments. And that if we just keep sustaining this reflection on Anicca, like not sure, don't know, it's not certain, then it, invariably the heart recognizes, oh yeah, that's right, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it seems like a good guess that I'm going to do this or that's going to go that way. or, or that's a, But then we realize, well actually, this is a, I know this is a plan. That much I know. What, what will happen is uncertain. And so that it's threatening, it's simultaneously threatening to the ego, but relieving to the heart. Right? It's like the ego wants to know. Like I've got to have, you know, I've got to have a system here. I've got to be sure. And it likes that reassurance. Like, don't worry, dear, everything will be all right. It's like <laughs> something in us uh, likes to hear that, even though, you know, just. Uh, barely below the surface, we know it's not true. <laughs> but we just like to hear it. So that it's a, it's a kind of an opening ourselves up to the unknown, as an opening of the heart to, to, to the unknown and to trust. So we can use the reflection on Anicca in, in that way. The reflection on Anatta is also... I mean, depending on sort of how, what sort of flavor you like, you know, if you're a strawberry type or a pistachio type or a vanilla type or chocolate fudge type, <laughs> you know, just you can we can choose our own styles or what works best for us. But one of the the kinds of meditation or mindfulness um, tools using anatta is just to cultivate asking who. So about and just about ordinary kind of physical actions, you know, who's walking, who's thinking, who's who's trying to get somewhere. You know, we've talked a lot about becoming during this week. This is the uh, with these two, like you know, the reflection on anatta and on anicca. It's like, where are you going? Who's gonna? Who's trying to get there? <laughs> where is there to go? Who wants to go there? Who is thinking? Who's walking? Who's feeling? Who's asking this question? And that that questioning or that drawing into our focus, that um, that kind of perspective, it 
at least momentarily, it bounces, it reflects back that assumptions about, oh, it's me, I'm doing this. I, I this individual person, am here and I'm going there. And so it's that reflection interrupts that. It kind of causes a, like a, a hesitation, a, a kind of ripple in the, a gap in the, in the self-creating program. So that it's not like we suddenly, if we ask the question, "Well, who is walking?" <laughs> then <laughs> freeze, we freeze in the spot. What we find is that we actually walk more freely, and we recognize there's nobody walking. There's just walking. There's just this this experience. Then we 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 find ourselves walking more freely. I had a strange experience one time at the Amravati in in our main monastery in England. Had this he used to have this big courtyard in the center. Uh, it was a school uh, built around this courtyard, and uh, and I I used to practice because I, I had a lot of d- duties at the monastery, and I was always buzzing around between you know, my room in the monks' vihara and then the office and then the meditation hall, and so toing and froing across the courtyard, and I always had things to do and important meetings to get to and schedules that I was having to meet. So I made it a practice. That whenever I was walking, I would be, uh, I would, I would make the effort to to walk and not go anywhere. Like a sort of conscious, non-becoming practice. So just feeling the body moving, but not going anywhere. If, uh, I think we talked about that a little bit earlier during the week with the walking meditation. And so I would, I would practice that, right? so that um, because there was always that tendency to lean into getting onto the next thing. So. I really was training myself, like as Ajahn Chah would say, like just walk one step at a time. And so uh, there was this guy who was uh, staying there, who was kind of eccentric. Um, well, in in England, uh, is known as gentleman of the road. It was a a hobo, <laughs> <laughs> gentleman or a philosopher of the road. There's a whole sort of population of these guys who actually circulate a lot between Christian monasteries, and a few of them are trying out the Buddhists. But since we didn't have dinner, we weren't very popular. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a bad deal when we can't even, even the hobos are giving up on us. <laughs> but anyway, this guy was kind of an eccentric, uh, eccentric character, and uh, very, but very outspoken. And I was, I was just walking across the courtyard. And he and he sort of and he was he kind of called out to me. He said, oh, "What are you doing, walking along like you don't exist?" <laughs> so it was interesting because he could actually see there was something noticeable about the way that was happening. So. So I, I heartily recommend this kind of practice, so that you are using these tools of, of like reflecting on not just not just the physical activities like walking, but also the way that we relate to others, in talking to others, the, the work that we do. Just don't think that the the all the emphasis on becoming just stops the, you know on Sunday at, at noon when when we separate, but. This is getting a real sense for that and seeing how pervasive it is in our life and, and taking these r- simple reflections on, on impermanence, uncertainty, and selflessness as a way of, these are the, the kind of tools that we can use to help to let the becoming habit dissolve.
to let that not dominate our, our hearts and be a sort of that influence which drags drags us around compulsively because it's life is so much more enjoyable when <laughs> when not it's not in a sort of compulsive um, cycle of, of activity always getting on to the next thing or never quite content with this because we got we got to look after that and that uh, and it's not as though we, we're sort of having to do everything in slow motion or that we, we kind of are acting in any kind of forced way. We actually can do a lot and, and move quickly, <laughs> even if necessary. But it's just that uh, an, an easefulness of heart in the way that we handle it. So that uh, as you uh, contemplate these, um, also these next couple of days, you know, the, and as the idea, oh, Sunday, I've got to, I've got to, and then there's this, and I've got to plan that. And the things that we have to do, just right here already, is the becoming. Even you might be thinking, oh, great, I'll do that tomorrow. You know, <laughs> that's what Ajahn Amaro is describing. Great, you know, I'll get on to that. <laughs> I'll get on to that practice of non-becoming. You know. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, that, nothing happens next. This is it. Remember? So that it's that, oh yeah, right now, that's what's happening. It's like, oh, the next thing, on tomorrow I will, and then on Sunday I will. It's like, ah, no, there's this. The reality is the Dhamma is here, it's not on Sunday. <laughs> so it's like giving ourselves that treat. That, that's the treat, of, that's the treat piece of retreat. <laughs> that, ah, this. So there's many other things that um, one could share in terms of carrying on the practice sort of outside of a formal structured situation and when the sort of retreat is uh, uh, officially over and maybe we'll touch on a few other themes um, before we all disperse. But these are just some basic principles uh, to, to be bearing in mind that we, are, we have many, many, many tools that, that uh, we can carry with us that Will help sustain the uh, the attitude that really liberates, and that uh, we are. Uh, it's up to us, you know. It's, the choice is ours, and uh, so I just want to you know offer up some of of these for for you all to reflect on for this evening, and and also to uh, um, encourage just that in that sense of. Looking at the 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 habit of becoming and using the circumstance of approaching the end of a retreat to make that's a, a wonderful example, <laughs> wonderful situation to look at that becoming tendency and how absolutely valid it seems to be, how genuinely important that I follow this impulse. But just using those reflections, like. Will I survive till the end of the retreat? No one's died yet. Who knows? What will happen? Don't know. What will it be like on Sunday? Don't know. And just, what will it be like tonight? Outside this hall, outside this, this moment? Don't know. And then, as I said, noticing that it's really threatening to the ego 
But underneath that, when we sort of part the curtain, don't know. The ease, the sort of, the treat, the evening treat. <laughs> there it is, that, that uh, the delight of, of the Dhamma is, is always here. But uh, if we just uh, let ourselves enjoy it. So, anyone? with the uh, Discourse on Loving-Kindness, which is uh, page 23 in the white ones, and uh, 36? No. Uh, Yeah, and 36 in the brown books. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing, that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, Medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill-will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life 
a child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbound, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world.